Lord now as we open up his word, and uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and um, I've asked Dennis to come, and he's going to read scripture for us today, and we're going to read chapter 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 5, verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 9. That's not going to be our text for today, um, but it is going to be the extent of a section of Ephesians that really is one unit. So Ephesians, uh, if you would stand together, we'll read this beginning at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom, discernment, Lord, as we go through this section of scripture together today and over the course of the next few weeks. We ask, Lord, that the practical implications of what we're gonna be uh, looking at, Lord, would, would not um, cause us to, to, to allow our minds to drift, Lord, because we're fearful of what it says, but, Lord, that we would rest in the confidence of your Holy Spirit directing us and feeding us and counseling us through your word so that we can be conformed to the image of your son. And I ask, Lord, that as your messenger today that I would be faithful to, to reflect your truth uh, in a powerful way so that God's people would be um, moved, Lord, to, to growth in Christ and that those who are uh, unbelievers, Lord, would be stirred to, to follow you as their Lord and Savior. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Um, <clears throat> the book of Ephesians, as I'm sure you know by now, really can be understood by looking at it um, in two sections. The first section being chapters one through three, um, where doctrine is really emphasized, teaching us what it means to be in Christ. And then chapters four through six as duty, uh, instructing us how to live our lives because we are in Christ. And as we turn the corner on chapter four, Paul introduces for us um, the metaphor of walking to help us understand how we are to live our lives. So in chapter four, Paul challenges us about our walk primarily as it relates to life within the church. And then as we begin chapter five and through, you might wanna say verse 20, Paul challenges us about our walk as it relates to life in the world. Now as we move to chapter five and verse 22 through chapter six, verse nine, Paul turns the screws even tighter and presses home his application in the arena of household 
life. That being marriage, parenting, and then vocation. Um, you see, it, it, is, it is much easier to appear authentically Christian at church than it is in the privacy of your home or even in the workplace. Often the only way to discover authenticity of your Christian faith is to ask your spouse or to ask your children because they see you with your hair down. They see you as you might want to say really are. And what we are when we are at work or at home is just as important to God, to Christ, as what we are when we are with other believers or what we are when we're serving God as the church in the community. So in this final section, the Holy Spirit, through Paul's words, is seeking to get to the heart of our life behind closed doors, so to speak, to get to what life is like when the mask is off in the context of marriage and parenting and the workplace. So this last section, chapter 5, 22 through 6, 9, is a hard-hitting, penetrating exhortation and exposure of what walking in Christ should look like in the home and at work. It's a rubber meets the, meets the road kind of a section of scripture. And there is a sense in which uh, we might come to this, like I, I said when, when I was praying, and want to tune out because this is kind of getting to the place where it's, it's touching on things that we do. It's touching on who we are. And I think sometimes as we, we come to a passage like this, it's a beautiful picture of what walking with Christ is, but it is also a mirror that reflects back to us our failures, our mistakes, our sinfulness, our conflict, our selfishness, our hypocrisy, and as the popular word is, our dysfunction. Um, that, of course, is all the result, result of sin. So God, in his love and careful guidance, wants us to walk through these texts carefully and humbly so that we can grow in wisdom and understanding in order to be filled up or to be mature in Christ. That's where he's pushing us. This is the goal for what he is saying about how we then live our lives because we are in Christ. We are to live in such a way that each day we're making steps toward becoming who we are in Christ. So, this is penetrating, powerful instruction for us. Now, as we begin reading the first household section, that's our text for today, chapter, two, uh, chapter 5, verse 22, through chapter, 30, uh, chapter 5, verse 33, we move from this metaphor of walking to a new metaphor specific now to our text, and that is the metaphor of the body of Christ. I just want you to think about this metaphor because we use this expression so much that we may kind of forget how this metaphor is being used. And, and as the body of Christ metaphor is used, we see that Christ is the head of body and he is likened then to the husband. And then the rest of the body is likened to the wife. So when we talk about the body of Christ, we're talking about Christ as the head of the church which then is a mirror of the husband being the head of the wife. That's how the picture is going to unfold for us. Now, as I'm sure you are aware, as we began reading this text, you recognize that this passage has caused anxiety for those in the church and those outside of the church for years because uh, oftentimes there has been a misunderstanding as to what is being said. Um, this is a passage that we must wade through with great care and great sensitivity. It is a passage that has caused great abuse because of its misapplication. As one commentator said, um, God's holy word in the hands of a religious fool can do immense harm. And God's holy word in the hand of a religious fool, this particular text can do a lot of harm in the body of Christ in marriage, and in the household. And I agree that under the umbrella of the church throughout history, numerous men have existed that are religious fools. 
who sit like Jabba the Hutt, expecting their wives to meet their every need. If you don't know who Jabba the Hutt is, I encourage you to watch Star Wars. And they observe, you know, expecting their wives to observe every command. They use as their, their weaponry this verse and pervert Paul's instructions to submit as to the Lord to mean, I am the Lord, I am your king, and you must submit to me. Now friends, that has been, to some degree, a standard in culture, and in many places is still a standard in culture. It may not necessarily be a standard in our culture today, but there may be lingering effects of that that are still present within the hearts and minds of people that are part of the church because they come from different cultures into the body of Christ, or they come from different cultures here to California. We're, we're a melting pot, right? I mean, there are all sorts of people from all different countries and nationalities, and all of them bring cultural ideas that speak to what the roles of marriage should be like. And there certainly can be abuses and can really come out with this idea of this or authoritative male dominance kind of a mentality um, that uh, has been so prevalent through the years. But hear this, even if there has been horrible perversions of this passage throughout the history of the church, that does not mean that we run away from this text. What it means is that we need to reclaim it and seek to understand what the word submit, for example, means here in this context, okay? So ignorance abounds, but at the same time, um, look here. Um, at the same time, we want to make sure we recognize that um, abuse also abounds. But this ignorance that abounds now um, is really something that we need to just pause and think about. Because the sad reality is that so much of our problems in marriage come down to either the ignorance or the willful disregard for what is taught in this passage. God has established roles for both husband and wife. Now, let me say that again. God has established roles for husband and wife. To ignore those roles, when rightly understood, is to invite conflict into that marriage. So if you're seeking to understand your roles in marriage based on the societal norms of a man-centered satisfaction that expresses itself in the following ways, you're, you're gonna be in for some trouble. And, and let me just kind of throw out some ideas that are out there. Um, I call this the self-satisfaction kind of view of marriage. Marriage is finding a soulmate, a person who truly and fully completes and satisfies me. I am happy because you satisfy me. Now, it sounds good. It's kind of warm and fuzzy and you know, let's all hug one another, right? It's this kind of self-satisfaction. I found my soulmate, you satisfy me, okay? The next one, the, the service satisfaction or servant satisfaction where this person says marriage isn't about me, it's about you. I commit my life to making you happy. If you are happy, then I am happy. But usually if there's this servant satisfaction, there's one person serving and the other person is what? Expecting to be served, all right? Um, or you have two people saying, no, no, I want to do it. No, 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 I want to do it. No, no, I want to do it. And nothing ever gets done, okay? Then there's the, the we satisfaction. This is kind of a compromise. Marriage isn't about you or me. It's about us. We think as one. We live as one. We feel as one. We are connected to each other. We are marriage. Now, in all of those, there's some element of truth that, would, that Scripture would speak to. The problem though with all of those approaches and the flaw of those approaches is that all of them are man-centered. They're not Christ-centered, okay? The institution of marriage, rightly understood, begins not with us but begins with God and his intention for that institution of marriage. In other words, culture might come up with some ideas as to what marriage is about. And we might end up believing those ideas, but what matters is not what culture says or thinks. What matters, first and foremost, is what God says and what he thinks about that particular institution of marriage and then the roles that are in that marriage. He designed marriage, and his declared roles are what he says are necessary for a healthy, glorifying marriage. 
okay? Now, society, on the other hand, paints the picture that marriage is simply an agreement that I can get out of. That seems to be more common now than it has been in years. If I get tired of that person, if I find something about them that I don't like, if they don't satisfy me, uh, serve me, or are compatible with me anymore, uh, if, if I simply have a change of heart, um, I've fallen out of love with you, I, I've lost that loving feeling, then you know what? We don't need to be married anymore. I get to choose that. Um, and I, you know, I, I have sat in counseling sessions before and let me kind of give you a, a, a kind of a picture of, of a common theme that, that has happened as I have uh, sat down with couples. Um, so let's say for example that a husband says something like the following, I just don't love her anymore. And I as the counselor might say, um, well, um, God calls you to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Um, do you think you can do that? To which he will respond, I can try, um, but I don't think that I can. We have drifted too far apart. Then as a counselor, I will say, okay, well, I understand you know, how you feel. The Bible also says, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, do you think you can love your wife like a neighbor? And um, the response will be, I don't think so. I'm too hurt, I'm too angry, but I can try. To which I respond, well, I can understand the pain that you're going through, but you know, the Bible also says to love our enemies. Do you think you can love your wife as an enemy? So you can't, you can't get out of what God requires. That's the point. All right, um, love and marriage is not is not uh, is not based on simply how you feel. How many of you people this morning got up and felt actually like getting out of bed this morning? All right, all right. There's a good number of people that didn't. Some of you may not have felt like coming to church this morning. A lot of times we don't feel like going to work. We don't feel like lots of things. And if we were to live our lives by our feelings, honestly, it would be chaos. And we wouldn't be able to count on each other. But we have to learn to master our feelings and to determine what is helpful, what is right. The thing is, what is the standard that tells us what is helpful, what is right and good? It's God. So when it comes to marriage, it's not so much our fickle feelings that dictate what is holy and serious, but it is God that dictates what is holy and serious and right and good. And so... This, this marriage between a husband and wife is instituted by God and it has, has instructions and directions that, that um, supersede our feelings and that actually our feelings need to come and, and, and rest under because there are gonna be times when you don't feel like it. There are gonna be times you don't like your spouse, okay? But that doesn't mean that you say, okay, we're done. It means that you now need to work through some things together. And that's putting marriage as what God says is priority and first and foremost, and then it filters down, okay? So what God wants is for us to be grounded in his will. He's calling us to, to, to walk in our marriages guided by his truth, not by the feelings that we may feel. Um, and I don't wanna diminish the fact that feelings are real and feelings actually feel um, and and, our, and you know, there are things that we go through, but they must always be submissive to God's guidance and his counsel. In other words, what we, do, what, what we do when we do what we do in marriage is not based on how we feel, but as an outflow of who we are in Christ. So this is, this is where this passage now is being rooted in who we are. If you are Christ, if you're in Christ, and all of chapter one through three is revealing to us what that looks like, then this is how you are to walk. And now he says, in particular, as it relates to marriage, it's the fact that you are in Christ that is the basis of your understanding of how you are to walk or to live and to exercise um, your responsibility in this union called marriage. You're to do it as an outflow of your union with Christ. So it is Christ who counsels us. It is Christ who leads us. It is Christ who directs us. It is to his word that we must come to seek and help, uh, seek for help and understanding of his will. Now, this is also a, a call for Holy Spirit guidance um, and, and recognizing that that is ultimately what is needed. So we're back in our text now, but we understand that undergirding this text, in fact, all of 
verse 22 through chapter six, verse nine, um, there is this ongoing presence and activity of the Holy Spirit guiding us to maturity in Christ. I wanna just go back now to Ephesians five and verse 18, and we wanna pick up this, this idea that, that really encompasses this short phrase, be filled with the Spirit. It says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we remember from last week, as we we tackled this really important section of scripture, um, that it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into the fullness that we have as God's children, which ultimately is or means our maturity in Christ. So the spirit-filled life is marked by, from this passage, as you remember, our singing, our thanksgiving, and our mutual submission. And so the last thing that we have in verse 21 is this this call to be spirit-filled seen through our ability to be mutually submissive. And then he goes on into marriage, and he goes on into parenting, and he goes on to the the, the workplace, and what then undergirds, or might want to say the, the theme that flows through all of these instructions is an attitude of mutual submission. And so mutual submission is present even when we're talking about the wife's responsibility to submit to her husband. So it's not an exclusive submission. There's a mutual submission that is going on, but there is a unique submission, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. So this is now applied, as we will see, to these areas of the household. The spirit-filled marriage, which is what we're gonna look at today. The spirit-filled family, which we'll look at um, next week. And then the spirit-filled vocation, um, which we'll look at the following week. So as we approach our text today, we can say boldly that the backdrop to a spirit-filled marriage is a mutual submission that is rooted in who we are in Christ. Okay, I'm just trying to, trying to draw you into this text. This is not a text we just take in isolation. This text is here, but there is a backdrop, and there are these themes that are, that are at work already in Paul's writing that are gonna be now hitting this text and give this text meaning, give this text understanding, and we must not miss that. So let's then look, first of all, at the spirit-filled wife. Then we're gonna look at the spirit-filled husband. So husbands, you're not off the hook, okay? This is... You know, we're not picking on wives because we don't like the wives. They just happen to be first in the text, all right? You with me there? Don't go home and say, Pastor Rod, he was picking us ladies first, all right? That's not the point. They're first, all right? And actually, there's far less to say here about the wives. There's far more to say about the husbands. <coughs> okay? I have this little frog in my throat, and as they say, he just crossed his legs. Um, so here is the spirit-filled wife, and, and the command to the spirit-filled wife is to submit to your husbands. Now at face value, we bristle at the call to submit as it is readily equated with words like subjugation, dominance, oppression. As if God is calling for a male dominance that oppresses and subjugates women. Of course, that is not what God is calling for at all. But the context makes it clear that God is using this word to express a willful submission, and we will show that. The context reveals that that the one call to submit is mentioned first in all three of these arenas. So here we have the wife who's called to submit. Chapter six, verse one, we have the children who are called to obey, right? In chapter six, verse five, the slaves are to obey their master. So the one who is called to be submissive is the one who's mentioned first. And a helpful passage for us, if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, um, uh, this passage is helpful because it shows how authority, leadership, and submission all work in harmony together. Peter is addressing the role of the, the elders, the leaders in the church at that point, and he says the following. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, there's that rule, there's that oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, okay? So there's some fashioning words here telling us what that oversight should look like. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What we see is that the elders are called to willingly oversee the flock God has given them responsibility for as examples of what it means to follow Christ. In other words, there is no contradiction between serving and having a role of authority and leadership. Both can stand together, both can coexist. So this idea then of authority rule or this idea of submission is not carte blanche now just to kind of give myself up to my husband in any way, shape, or form, and I must be, you know, must do everything he says that I need to do. That is not what this passage is saying, but there is this attitude of willful submission to the husband that is still yet to be kind of unfolded here that God is saying, I want you to pay attention to, ladies. I want you to see what it is that that I have in store for you. Now notice again, it says, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And like I mentioned earlier, some chauvinists have promoted the interpretation that this means that we are to treat uh, the husbands like the Lord or as if, as if that husband is the Lord. That is a very bad interpretation of the passage. It's actually a very bad reading of the passage, not even an interpretation of the passage. But this is not the point of Paul's words. What Paul is teaching is that the wife's submission is a duty that she shows the Lord. Her submission then is a reflection of her walk with God. She's doing it for Christ's sake. She's doing it for the Lord's sake. When she submits to her husband, it's not for the husband's sake, it is ultimately for the Lord's sake. Okay, this is really important. Because it's not the husband that demands submission. She is willfully submitting because she sees that responsibility as a God-given responsibility, and so she wants to be obedient to Christ to submit to her husband, okay? So Paul is, is teaching us this, this wife's submission is a duty that she owes the Lord. So when the wife submits to Christ, she does it willingly. When she submits to her husband, she also does it willingly. So, so Paul does not have coercion in mind, but rather a willful, gospel-driven submission from wife to husband that originates from a right relationship with Jesus. Now, let's think about what I'm calling the reason for that submission. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So now we have this picture of the body of Christ used as a means by which to help us understand um, this role of, uh, of a wife and this role of a husband also, all right? Now sometimes the feminist crowd seeking to overthrow the submission authority language have argued that the word that is used here, head, is to be understood as source rather than rule. Now one of the problems with that is that you can't really argue for that contextually you can't go to the context of Ephesians or other places in, in, in the Bible that would be similar context and find that word translated that way. You can't even go to the, the Greek, I wanna say, um, uh, literature that's outside of the Bible and find that word used in that way. It really is a fabrication for the purpose of elevating a feminist mentality. And now let's just think about the context of Ephesians. Turn to Ephesians chapter one, verse 22 just to help us understand. Ephesians chapter one and verse 22. And he, that is God the Father, put all things under his, that's Jesus Christ's feet, and gave him, that's Christ, as head over all things the church. So God, or the Godhead, put Christ as head over the church. That is a position of rule. That is a position of authority. That is the language, that is the idea that is being talked about here. Now, 
go to chapter 4 and verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, of course, that's Christ, who is the head into Christ. Okay, again, this authority, this, this one who rules. Now, the point here is this, that the context shows that this word head not only points to Christ, but also points to this one who is an overseer, who is a ruler, who is the head over. That's what the context reveals. And his headship is for the church. Okay? And so on the, on the back of this idea of authority and rule then is um, responsibility. And so let's just apply that. If, if this is how Christ then um, cares for the church, he oversees the church, and the husband then is to be a reflection of that, what's going on here is that the husband not only has been given authority to be the head, but he's also been given the responsibility to be that head. All right, anyone here ever been to a wedding before? There might be a few of you, probably, especially you married people, you might have been there, right? At a, at a wedding ceremony, this is what happens, right? The bride comes in, usually with the father on her arm, and you know, all the focus is on her, right? Dun, 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 all, all that stuff is happening. They're coming down the aisle, and she stops, and the pastor would say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And the father of the bride will say, her mother and I. At which time, the groom steps down and grabs his bride and takes her up to, you might want to say, the platform, the altar, we don't want to call it there. What's going on there? That is a purposeful communication of this whole issue of headship. Because that father is the head of the home. Doesn't mean that he is like, he is the king, he's the ruler, he's the master, he's the, doesn't mean that. It means that in God's eyes, he is responsible for that home. And he is ultimately then responsible for that daughter. And so when the pastor says, who gives this woman to be married to this man, and he says, her mother and I, what he's saying is, I am transferring, or in that, in that transfer, I am transferring my authority and my responsibility to the groom. And so that groom, he has no idea what he's getting into, right? I mean, he's, he's grabbing his bride and he's taking her up to the altar, not realizing that that symbolizes huge change in responsibility. You know, the day before, he was having fun with his friends. He was goofing off and thinking about the, the wedding and the marriage. But now, buddy, you are responsible for this girl. Not only are you responsible, but you are an authority over her in the Lord. Okay? You are to care for her. You are to look out for her needs and so on and so forth. So this is symbolic, and this is, this is what's important to realize, that this idea of headship and this idea of submission is also an idea of submitting then to the God-given responsibility that God has placed on the husband to care for you who are his wife. Okay? Just like the church places itself under Christ, so the wife places herself under that authority and responsibility of her husband, who is doing that for the sake of Christ. That's the, um, that's the first section here. Now look at verse 24, the nature of the submission. We saw the reason for the submission, but now let's think about the nature of that submission. Now as the church submits to Christ, so as this is happening, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now let's be clear about at the outset, what, what submission is not. Okay, this would be a good time to talk about this. It is not, as already mentioned, a form of slavish obedience. In everything is not a word to be approached with blinders to the teaching of God's word. Okay? Christ is her supreme authority. She's doing it as to the Lord, and she leans on the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit's teaching um, through the word to discern what is right and what is wrong, to discern whether or not what her husband is asking her to do reflects what Christ would want her to do. So this in everything is not saying, even if your husband tells you to sin, you should sin. 
If you're a wife and your husband tells you to sin, what do you do? You don't do it because you are to submit as to the Lord. Your ultimate submission is to the Lord. The Lord is your master, not your husband. He's your husband, and he has authority, and he has responsibility for you, but you ultimately are submissive to the Lord. So this is not carte blanche for a husband to say, you need to do what I'm telling you to do because I'm, I'm the man in the house, right? You know, I used to say, I used to wear the pants in the house. Well, that doesn't work anymore, so I don't know what you wear now, all right? But, you know, um, you, you can't use that kind of language and those kind of ideas because they just don't, they don't fly. Biblically, they don't fly. It is not, secondly, suggesting some form of spiritual inequality. Submission doesn't mean that you are somehow, as a woman, inferior to your husband intellectually, um, spiritually, socially, in other ways. In God's eyes, both sexes are equal. They're equal, but there are differences, and there are unique differences that are God-given differences as far as how they carry out their responsibilities. Galatians 3, 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, as a husband looks at his wife, he's saying, she is just as much in Christ Jesus as I am. Now, we may be on different planes as far as our maturity in Christ, but it's not because we're battling it out with each other. All right? So ultimately, this command is to willfully submit to her husband. And when, when submission means that she will be honoring Christ. Let me, let me paint a picture then, okay? A couple of weeks ago when I was in Bolivia, as some of you know, um, I took a tumble and I fell slipping on some tile and I landed on kind of a, a raised kind of a path uh, where it was also tile and, and landed on the edge of it. So I full brunt, I mean it was wet and I bam, it was really fast hit hard, went right down here, ran through my legs. And, um, and, and so when I, when I wake up in the morning now, I'm still in pain. And my, my mind now has to speak to my body. And it has to say, okay, you know, chest, chest is, is in pain. And uh, so I, I wanna get out of bed with the least amount of pain as possible. All right, so left hand, reach up and, and hold on to the edge of the bed and maybe you can pull yourself up. And as I start doing that, my chest says, Okay, and so now my head says to my feet, okay, you know, feet and legs, you need to slide yourself off the bed so you can kind of turn around and then get off the bed, and finally, eventually, I'm able to turn and I'm able to sit, okay, at least I got that far, all right, and now I have to figure out how am I actually going to get up out of the bed, because those things, strangely enough, are still painful to me, but it happens because my Mind, my head, is communicating to my hands and communicating to my feet and my legs what to do. There needs to be cooperation between the two, right? Okay. So um, <clears throat> let me change, let me change the, the scenario a little bit. Imagine that I'm in the kitchen and um, I'm going to light some burners to heat up some soup, and, and my head says to my hand, hey, listen, turn the burner on and stick yourself in that fire for about 30 seconds. What's my hand going to say to my head? I don't think so. Okay? Now, what we do not want is we don't want rogue body parts doing their own thing, right? I mean, because that would be strange. Be walking down the road, and all of a sudden your leg says, I don't want to walk anymore, Right? That doesn't fit with the picture of the body. That's the point here. That's the image that is being portrayed. So in the same way, God is not calling the wife to place herself in danger or to violate God's commandments simply to be a submissive wife. She is to submit willfully, joyfully, and in the Lord because she wants to be protected, she wants to be cared for, and she ultimately is part of the body where the husband is the head and they are ultimately one flesh. And that kind of takes place a little later in the passage. Okay, so there's this willful submission that is needed. Secondly, now let's think about the spirit-filled husband. The spirit-filled husband. All right. So ladies, you're a little off the hook right now. Take a sigh of relief. Very good. All right. That's enough relief. Now you're back on the hook. All right. 
The command for the husbands is love your wives. Love your wives. Husband, love your wives. It's pretty simple, right? That's what it says. Love your wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, because we're living 2,000 years or plus beyond the time when this letter was written, we tend to be unable to place ourselves um, in the context of Rome or in the context of Ephesus or the typical Hellenistic culture's attitude about husbands and wives and their roles. Now, interestingly enough, the call for a wife to submit to her husband in that context was not radical. Pretty normal. But the call for the husband to love his wife in that context is a radical and countercultural message for the male-dominated society of that day that saw wives as a little better and a little above slaves. They were often thought of as property to bear children and to stay out of the way. Demosthenes says this, we have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. Hopefully you would not enjoy being married to Demosthenes if you're a lady. All right? Xenophon said it was the husband's aim that a wife might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. That's all they expected of a wife. Even within Judaism, the liberal arm of Judaism, the school of Hillel, allowed a man to divorce his wife for virtually anything, for adding too much salt on the food for becoming less attractive in his eyes. That's a, that's a pretty rough way to live, isn't it? But Christ comes along, and Christianity comes along as a result of Christ coming along, and now we have this radical instruction to the husbands to actually love their wives. And this is a radical change in their thinking. So this, this idea of submitting to your husband, as I said, is not necessarily that radical, but this command to hus- for husbands to love their wives is. And notice, as we think about it, there are two ways in which we're told to do that. First of all, to love our wives as, as Christ loved the church, first of all. And he does that really in two ways. It says, Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. So what does it mean for a husband to give himself up for his wife? Well, first of all, it's a call to self-sacrifice. It's a call to self-sacrifice. Jesus gave up his life for the church, right? I mean, he left heaven, came to this earth, went to a cross, knowing he was going to die. That was the whole purpose. And he did that for the church. And so if that is true, husbands, you and I are called to give up our lives for our wives. And when you were married, the Bible tells us that you were to leave mother and father and be joined together and become one flesh. And so that also means that you give up all other relationships as a priority. So hanging out with your buddies, that is not the priority anymore. Spending all your money on cars or golf or baseball games, or fill in the blank, whatever it was before marriage, is no longer the priority anymore. It doesn't mean it can't be done, it just means it's not the priority anymore. You died to self for the sake of your wife. And Christ died to self for the sake of the church. So instead of going out to hang out with your buddies, there might be some honeydew list that needs your attention. I'm going to be really in trouble by the end of my sermon because there are going to be all sorts of things that my wife is going to say, now you need to do. Um, I'm just thinking about that as I'm, as I'm preaching here. All right? So, um, for example, you know, a washed car, um, a leaky faucet, um, a broken window, um, a cluttered closet. Yeah, I'm speaking from my world here, guys. Some, some evil wall hangings. You guys ever hung up wall hangings for your wives? It's probably the most evil thing in the world, right? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You kind of, you're over here, and do you want it here? 
No, no, why don't you move it to the right a little bit? Okay, how's that? You know, why don't you push it up higher? Okay, and what about this one over here? Let's move that one down and, okay, you know what I'm talking about. But you do that out of self-sacrifice to your wife, okay? You put your wife and her needs above your own. That's what Christ did. I know I'm being, being silly, but also trying to be purposeful here to, to get a point across, and that is that this is what Christ did for us, and it wasn't, it wasn't some haphazard thing. This was his intention all along. And so if you are someone who is anticipating marriage and you are a man, when you say, I do, you are saying, I am giving myself to you in a sacrificial way. It is also a call to be attentive. Christ doesn't neglect his church. He's attentive to his church. He's looking out for his church. I think one of the wonderful stories in the Gospels is when the disciples are out on the, on the lake and, and uh, the storm comes up and, you know, where is Jesus? What is he going to do? He's left us alone. And Jesus later says, oh, yeah, I saw you from the side. I was praying and I was watching. He always knows what's going on. He's always attentive. So that would mean for us as husbands, be attentive to her needs, eager to listen, eager to respond, delighting to be in her presence. It's also a call to faithfulness. When Jesus gave, gave himself up for the church, it was a promise to be with her through thick and thin. And what he began, he would finish. You know, the, the typical marriage ceremony, you know, for rich or for poor, for sickness, and that whole thing. Uh, a lot of times people just blow through that, not realizing what they're saying. But this is the idea. There is a faithfulness. There is a commitment. Now, the, re the reality, friends, is that, that marriage... Um, in marriage, there is all sorts of difficulty and struggle and trouble. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. In fact, that means that it's right. Marriage is going to have those things. Marriage now is preparation for marriage in eternity. And this is the training ground. This is the proving ground. This is the, the time where God uses marriage to conform both the husband and wife to be more like their son, Jesus Christ, or his son, Jesus Christ. The journey of marriage will be difficult and it will require commitment, faithfulness, trust while on the journey. It's also a call to prayer. Just as Christ prayed for the church, so husbands should be praying for their wives. But praying specifically for their growth in Christ, for their struggle with sin, for their temptations that they face, for the responsibilities on their shoulders, their boldness with the gospel. Isn't that how Jesus prayed for the church? I mean, how Jesus prays for the church is a model for how husbands can pray for their wives. Just think about that. So when we're told here to, to love our wives as Christ loved the church, we notice that it's first a sacrificial love that is marked by those four things and probably others, but it's also, secondly, a sanctifying love. Look at verse 26. And this section, this passage, these two verses, verses 26 and 27, really kind of identify that the sanctifying love is the goal that Christ has for the church that he loves. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so this is what Christ is doing with the church. And so as husbands, we take that, that example, we take that image, and we recognize that God has put on the shoulders of husbands this desire to sanctify our wives through the ministry of the word of God so that one day she can stand before him holy and blameless. Now this is how the book of Ephesians begins. Look at chapter one, verse four. Even as he, that's God, chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So this is what Christ is doing for the church. And he's saying this is also then what husbands should be doing for their wives. What does that mean? What does that look like? This is a picture of the ongoing sanctification process, or we call it progressive sanctification. And it indicates here that, that the role of the husband is to be one of a spiritual leader. A husband that is concerned with his wife's spiritual growth. This is not a, a call to simply allow her to grow spiritually. Yeah, you wanna go to church, that's fine. Yeah, you wanna go to that, that's fine. No, it, it, it's, 
It's a call to be the agent of that spiritual growth. It's a big difference there. Now, of course, her salvation and sanctification is solely due to the work of Christ, but one of the instruments and one of the main instruments that God is using is you, the husband, to bring about that sanctification. Okay? So, he is to be a partner in her spiritual growth. He wants her to grow. He's eager to see that growth take place. He is taking responsibility for that to happen. Secondly, he's, a, he's to be a man growing in the responsibility of ministering the word himself in the context of marriage. That means he must be growing in the, the word first um, and that he is leading and guiding her through the word. It also means that he is to be a man applying himself to her growth Uh, through coming to God in prayer, just like we mentioned. The bottom line is this, that he is more concerned with the inward beauty of her heart than with the outward adorning of her body. The sanctifying love is committed to seeing his wife stand before Christ, mature in her walk, to be like Christ. So, to love your wife as Christ loved the church is not an easy thing. But you have the model of Christ to lean on. It's a self-sacrificing love. It is, as I said here, a sanctifying love. Um, But we're also told here to, to love as you love yourself. And this is where all the, oh, all the, uh, you know, the, the, the psychology people go, yeah, this is great, yeah, love yourself. But that's not what's being talked about here. Okay? This is not a, a call to narcissism at all. There is this self-love that is being called on here, but let's, let's understand it in its context. And just follow the thought, if you would, please. Let's read verse 28 and 29, well, actually, verse, and verse 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies... He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So the church, then, is the body of Christ, and Christ, then, looks at his body, cares for that body, is, you know, is, is attentive to that body. But what we're, what's being called for here is a kind of self-love. Okay? Now, this, this, this bride of Christ, this church, is really, as it's talked about here, a, a, a mystical, spiritual union with Christ. And the same principle, then, is true in a spirit-filled marriage. And Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 here. Notice verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. This, is the mis- this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And this idea of mystery is throughout the book of Ephesians, talking about this union in Christ, and how Christ takes people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and by virtue of what he's done on the cross, he makes them alive again. He takes Jews and Gentiles and makes them into one man because he wants that to be a way that the wisdom of God can be on display to the world. And it talks about this being a mystery, the gospel, this union being a mystery. And here we have marriage now pictured as one flesh, and this is a profound mystery because it is pointing to Christ and the church. So there is an amazing unity in marriage, this one flesh idea, which is a present reality, and there's an amazing union in marriage, one body, which is a spiritual reality, the church. And so it's to this one flesh reality that Paul's referring to. The husband loves his wife as his own body, get this, because marriage is a one flesh reality that means that she is his body. You get that? Let me say it again. The husband loves his wife as his own body because their, their marriage is a one flesh reality. That means that she is his body. So this is not some kind of narcissistic kind of self-love. It's a kind of uh, practical love that recognizes this one flesh union. 
Now, we, we naturally love ourselves. We don't, we don't have to force ourselves to love ourselves. I mean, we, we don't have to think about it. Um, we don't have to think about our needs. When we're hungry, we feed ourselves. When we're tired, we rest, right? When, we're, uh, when we have an injury, we're quick to, to tend the wound. When, we're, um, when we see that there's something wrong with our attire or whatever, we're, we're quick to change that. This is all because we are naturally concerned with our own bodies. But now, with this one flesh relationship, this body is a head and a body together. There's, there's a unity that's taking place here. And because we're, we're in Christ, um, this one flesh then is our own body. And so we love our wives as we would our own bodies because our wives now are our own bodies. So we tend to our own bodies. We nurture our own bodies. We feed our own bodies. We, we, we care for our own bodies. That's the idea. That's the picture that is being presented here. So we have the spirit-filled wife. We have a spirit-filled husband. And that leads us now to what I consider to be a summary statement in this passage, um, the spirit-filled marriage. And he kind of summarizes now what these two things are once again. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the section began with love and submission, but it ends with love and respect. As a husband and wife learn to live out their spirit-filled roles, they will begin to see a godly headship that loves and a godly submission that respects, okay? So the spirit-filled husband lovingly leads his wife in a sacrificial way, in a sanctifying way, and in a gospel-centered, selfish, one-body way. And the spirit-filled wife willfully submits to the responsibility that God has placed on his shoulders to care for his wife, to rule, to oversee her. So marriage has been distorted by the fall, but it can be liberated by the gospel. Oppressed women will find themselves loved with a sacrificial love. Oppressive men will begin to exercise biblical headship, which at its core is marked by a servant leadership. Now friends, you know, we've kind of walked our way through this passage. And, and, and if, you're, if you're like me, you've come to a text like this and you look in the mirror of what God says and you're discouraged. You probably see in, you know, in, in this passage areas of failure, areas of sin, the shambles maybe that you've made it. So, so now what does God want you to do? How does God want you to walk away from this text? And I wanna just kind of leave you with, with five ideas that, that, that flow out of this text that just I think are helpful for us as we, as we progress in our understanding of what it means to be in Christ in particular as it relates to marriage, right? So number one, um, I wanna say this. Begin, begin to understand and embrace God's pattern for marriage rather than man's perversion of it. Listen, friends, there's a priority here, and that is to say that man may have a lot of ideas, and some of those ideas may be good, may be helpful, but the primary thing is God's pattern and understanding God's pattern. And if, if man has any wisdom to say about fleshing out God's pattern, it may be helpful, but God's pattern is a priority, and often what happens is that man perverts it. All right? Men are from Mars and women are for where? Right? Oh, well, I've got the truth now. No, um, you need to read Ephesians chapter five. And there are a lot of things that blow through our culture. It's like, okay, now we have the right picture of what's going on. Listen, the gospel has been blowing through this world for a long time. And God has a plan, and his plan is good. The problem is that his plan is not consistent with living a sinful, ungodly lifestyle. His plan is consistent with living a lifestyle that wants Christ as master, that recognizes that a union with him, which means that because I am in him, I, am, I now need to live my life out of that union, and so he is my master. He is the one that ultimately I, I need to recognize. And so his pattern is primary. Secondly, begin to practice your God-given roles even if they feel awkward or strange to you. Men, that means taking 
your walk with God seriously. Your walk with God is the beginning of your nurturing of your wife. It means taking time to pray with your wife, to read God's word with her, and to set the direction of your marriage down the path toward becoming more like Jesus Christ. So what are you doing, husbands, to, to say this is important? Now, it might be awkward for you. Maybe say, I've never done that before, and I don't know how. And how do I, how do I you know, how do I minister the word of God in the context of, of my marriage? It's just weird, it's, it's awkward. My wife knows more than I do, and all those kinds of things. Begin to practice your God-given role, even if it feels awkward or strange to you, because it is your God-given role. And then wives, that means taking Christ seriously and trusting that your imperfect, sinful husband who is seeking to grow in his responsibility before God uh, uh, for you is worth respecting and submitting to because Christ says so and it will take time and encouragement from both of you to really work through this together, all right? So just, it may be awkward, it may, it may feel kind of difficult, but you, you still need to say, this is your, it's what you're saying, God, I wanna do it. Here's the third one. Begin to see your marriage as a one flesh relationship. All right, physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. That it is this one flesh relationship that God has, it is in this one flesh relationship, I should say, that God has completed each of you. So you're, you're, you're completed not because you have the same interests. Right? You know, we both love to go skiing and we both love to you know, play racquetball and we both love to, whatever it might be, oh, see, we're, we're so compatible. No, true compatibility is oneness in Christ. Those other things are simply things that you do together. Because it's probably gonna come a time when you're not both gonna be able to go skiing, right? Um, the point is, but you will still be one flesh in Christ. And as you are one flesh in Christ, your interests actually end up being consistent with each other, right? Number four, allow your mutual submission to undergird your God-given roles. So in other words, you're not carrying out your God-given roles with some kind of a authoritarian or kind of passionate um, or inordinate passion that would, that would kind of undermine this whole purpose. You are to be submissive to one another, right? So your God-given roles are not given to you so that you can be selfish, but so that you can glorify God. Let me put it this way. The spirit-filled nature of your mutual submission is the place setting for your unique God-given roles to be lived out. And finally, in the greater context of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, I want us to go back to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, because I think this kind of gives us the tone of attitudes that we need in order to flesh out this walk with, with Christ. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, help us today. Lord, as we just kind of settle in on what your word teaches about our roles, Lord, I, I just ask today as a result of our time in the word that, that uh, there are some ladies that would be mindful of what you're saying to them and would um, either begin to or rediscover their responsibility to being willfully submissive to their husbands. I ask, Lord, that there would be men uh, who are husbands who, as a result of wading through this passage together would be stirred in their heart to consider uh, the instructions that you give them to love their wives and to do that as you love the church and to do it in such a way that they love their own bodies. And Lord, would you, would you help us as a church not to shy away from what your word says about the roles of husband and wife, but Lord, to be clear about distortions of that to be clear about um, how we apply that effectively and carefully. 
And Lord, I, I ask that, that we would at least begin to see people take on these responsibilities and, and begin to grow to, to allow these roles to be something that are fleshed out in the context of their marriages. Lord, there, there's so much um, untruth out there as it relates to marriage. Lord, we, we need to hear what you say about it. But Lord, we need to see what you say about it because it is there in your word. And Lord, allow us then as we continue in our own private, own devotional time, even at home group times, to dig a little deeper, to, to consider how these things flesh out in, in practical ways. Um, to even talk about some of the, the difficult scenarios, Lord. I know there are some people who, who may have a, a spouse who isn't as eager about their walk with God. And how does, how does that person maintain their responsibility to carry out these roles, Lord? There's so many kind of um, nuances, Lord, that need to be fleshed out. And Lord, I just ask that we together as your church would, uh, would be mindful. And Lord, that you give us wisdom to consider our situation and how this directly applies to us. And that ultimately, Lord, that all that, is, all that is done in marriage, whether it's a husband or whether it's a wife, will be done um, as to the Lord, because you are our master, you are our savior, you are our Lord. And Lord, we wanna do it for your honor and for your glory. And Lord, so if we're men and we, we have difficulty leading, Lord, may we, may we just lead and trust you and learn from you. And if we're ladies who have difficulty submitting, Lord, may you give us strength to submit and to trust and to do it for you. And uh, Lord, we just ask for your help now. And Lord, we, we, we need your help in your precious holy name. Amen.